German-American cultural ties date back to the very founding of Texas, where thousands of German settlers built towns from Fredericksburg, Fredericksburg to Pflugerville that remain today. Our nation's shared values have contributed to an incredibly meaningful partnership on the world stage. Germany is one of the most important European bilateral relationships the U.S. has. As a central player in transatlantic relations, Germany plays a crucial role in the world, especially as we utilize those very ties to face the crises of our time, like climate change, security threats, and pandemics, together. Good morning and good afternoon to those joining from other time zones. Welcome to the program, and thanks for joining us. I'm Liz Brailsford, president of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I've been lucky enough to interact with our guest speaker today with my previous work when I lived in DC. So I know we're in for a treat. We are thrilled to welcome the Honorable Emily Haber, Ambassador of the Federal Republic of Germany to the United States. Veteran journalist Lee Collum joins us to moderate this important discussion on the future of the transatlantic partnership. I'd like to take a moment to thank our wonderful program partners, the American Council on Germany and their president and my friend, Stephen Sokol. I'd also like to recognize 2021 Wonderbar together and thank the staff at the German embassy for making this event possible. This program is part of the ambassadors meeting America series, one of the several virtual talks with stakeholders across the United States. How critical that these conversations are occurring, and we greatly appreciate that Ambassador Haber is dedicating her time to engage the American public on these issues. The Council will continue to offer top-tier virtual programming into the fall. We're almost there. So continue to check out our website at dfwworld.org for newly scheduled events. Joining us to moderate our conversation is Lee Collum, a celebrated journalist at Public Media of North Texas and senior fellow at the John Tower Center for Public Policy and International Affairs at SMU. Lee is a regular commentator on PBS NewsHour and NPR, NPR's All Things Considered, an editorial writer for the Dallas Morning News, and former host of KERA's CEO program. On the board of the Council on Foreign Relations for 10 years, she's also served on the board of our partners today, the American Council on Germany, as well as Freedom House and the Pacific Council on International Policy, among others. Currently, Lee sits on the board of the American Security Project and is a member of the Trilateral Trilateral Commission. I know we're in for a great conversation. Ladies, thanks again for joining us. We'll begin with some remarks by uh, the ambassador. And with that, the floor is yours. Thank you so much, Liz. And it's certainly a pleasure to introduce Ambassador Emily Haber. Uh, she is a diplomat's diplomat, no doubt about that, the daughter of a diplomat. Uh, she grew up in many parts of the world, from Paris to New Delhi to Washington. Now, back in Washington, we're happy to say, since 2018. Uh, she majored in history in Cologne at the university there and ethnology as well. And she has certainly lived through and I suspect influenced a lot of history. I think she has a way of moving to the center of action, whether she intends to or not. She's there. Uh, and 1999, she was running the economics department at the embassy in Moscow when cowboy capitalism was hitting high tide. Quite a, quite a moment in Russia. She was in Turkey where there is always action, whether we want it or not.
not. And in 2015, when refugees were pouring into Germany from the war in Syria, they reached 100 before the year was over. She was running, guess what, uh, the Department of Migration, Security, and Immigration, truly a tough department in the Interior Ministry. In, uh, in Berlin. So uh, she is, and I think she did such a wonderful job with that very difficult portfolio that she was sent to another difficult station, the German embassy in Washington, where relations were somewhat strained and she has, she always puts everything to right. And I'm so glad that Liz reminded you of our German community here in Texas. Uh, we're very proud of Munster is not so far from Dallas and Fredericksburg has an excellent Oktoberfest. With this invitation to Oktoberfest, I'm very happy to turn to the ambassador. We're eager to hear what you have to tell us. Thank you, Lee Cullum, for this uh, introduction. And thank you to Liz uh, Bravesford uh, for the invitation. I'm looking forward to today's discussion. And let me jump right into uh, the uh, uh, topic. And that is the German-American relationship, the transatlantic relationship. I believe uh, you've seen that over the past weeks, uh, uh, a number of German politicians, parliamentarians, uh, members of cabinet and the chancellor have traveled uh, uh, to uh, DC. It was the first time since over, uh, <laughs> since over 18 months uh, that I had seen such a long string of politicians here in, in Washington. And actually during my entire tenure, uh, which is uh, since uh, June, 2018, uh, the chancellor hadn't traveled to Washington to see, uh, uh, to, uh, to pay a visit to the White House. So it um, was after, if you will, a long hiatus. It doesn't mean that there was radio silence uh, uh, over the past 18 months or longer. Uh, there were endless Zoom meetings uh, and uh, telephone conferences uh, and uh, international virtual meet meetings, virtual most of them in any event. But I don't know whether you witnessed that if you discuss um, or interact on Zoom, it's really uh, usually you interact on a specific subject uh, or a specific interest uh, or uh, a specific uh, irritant. What you don't catch at Zoom is, um, um, is the context or uh, the, the uh, uh, wider picture uh, or uh, the, the longer perspective. It is, if you will, um, very compartmentalized. And I'm saying that because somehow this tapped into uh, um, an, uh, the longer uh, period of the past uh, four years, five years. Uh, and as I know, I'm in Texas and I know that Texans are straight uh, shooters. Uh, my, the point I want to make is, is this. It tapped into a general um, approach of the previous uh, administration, uh, which uh, tended to interact uh, with um, uh, in, in uh, international policy, uh, in international politics, in a way looking through the lens uh, of specific interests or irritants or problems. It was also a very compartmentalized approach. It usually didn't look at the context uh, and the interests or irritants or problems uh, were uh, practically non-related. Uh, this was because equations were necessary because in general, um, relationships uh, were not something you'd invest into uh, in order to uh, 
to use their potential uh, for wider pictures or for wider interests. Uh, so this um, trend and this legacy of compartmentalization and of decontextualization, which I had seen over the past years, has been reinforced by, um, by the pandemic and by the technology that the pandemic enforced upon uh, all of us. And I really only um, saw that uh, in hindsight uh, when the vid visits occurred and when I realized uh, that visits actually tell a story. They tell a story about context, about the wider relationship, about how you want to interact. They do it by dint of protocol and speeches and meetings and uh, um, uh, gestures and so forth. They tell a story about how we want to interact among ourselves, how we want to ma manage relationships, how we want to manage or solve uh, uh, or tackle uh, uh, differences. So that's uh, where we are right now. Now, and in, in, in this sense, if you will, uh, the visits of late, and in particular the visit of the Chancellor, has um, started a decompartmentalization of the relationship, and it's returned uh, the relationship to the wider context. Um, uh, among the um, results of uh, the uh, uh, latest visit is the Washington um, uh, Declaration. And I've been asked by people, including by journalists, uh, but much of this Washington Declaration actually reiterates something uh, that you would have said five years ago or 10 years ago or 15 years ago. That is uh, uh, the commitment to democratic values, uh, to standing in for democratic values, to NATO, to EU, uh, uh, to uh, um, uh, an open world uh, uh, and so forth. And that's true. Uh, it is part of the reassurance. And I'd say it comes after a couple of years uh, when no one was quite certain uh, um, how ironclad uh, our commitment to alliances and to, uh, um, and to commitments in general uh, was going to be. This was a question that was not only asked by some in Europe, but also by those uh, who um, carefully read uh, um, how fissures between uh, ourselves and within the transatlantic relationship uh, uh, would evolve. Um, so the reassurance that comes with a visit uh, is also uh, uh, messaging to the rest of the world these commitments are the founding pillars uh, of our relationships in the transatlantic relationship, the EU-American uh, rela uh, the, the, uh, EU, um, relationship, the German-American relationship, and within uh, NATO. But you see, reassurance or reiterating commitments will not be enough because obviously the world around us has changed. Uh, geopolitics has changed. Geoeconomics has changed. Uh, uh, geotech uh, is, uh, is becoming uh, um, an overwhelmingly important uh, factor uh, that will define how democracies and how authoritarian states uh, will, uh, will interact. So what was necessary, we felt, and that will define our future relationship, is also looking at uh, these changes and figuring out how to go forward uh, as we uh, look at uh, the challenges, uh, the huge disruptive challenges of our time from climate change to the pandemic, uh, to a change of geoeconomics, uh, um, to uh, um, uh, 
another huge uh, um, disruptive uh, uh, phenomenon of our time, and that is the evolution uh, of frontier technologies, which will alter uh, and possibly undermine uh, society, democratic societies. So we'll have to figure out uh, how we defend or define the space in which uh, these technologies evolve, the limits possibly, uh, the standards uh, that will reign uh, uh, that will reign in. And it is obvious to me uh, that we'll have to do that together as democracies, uh, because technologies can actually be um, undermine what democracies want to defend. Uh, um, privacy, uh, uh, data protection, uh, individual rights, uh, democratic rights, uh, and we're there to defend it and actually define the space uh, in which democracies uh, uh, can evolve. And we are up to uh, um, authoritarian uh, interests of authoritarian states uh, that have uh, that pursue uh, a direction which is mutually exclusive with what we want to achieve. Uh, they use technologies in order to constrain uh, uh, societies, in order to uh, um, in order to mainstream and control and even oppress uh, societies. So that is a huge challenge for our time, and that is why. Uh, um, uh, these recent visits uh, have uh, decided that we need not only to discuss about how to do it and how to overcome um, individual differences we might have in the tech uh, sector from data protection to data flows to uh, uh, privacy, etc. But what is much more important is that we actually figure out uh, how we move forward uh, on uh, the uh, key issue, the central issue, and that is defining the space uh, for uh, uh, technology and defining the space in a way that will harness our capacity for innovation as well. Uh, the E, uh, a new economic dialogue comes in here as well, as does the uh, new climate uh, and energy uh, uh, partnership uh, that uh, we have concluded uh, last year, uh, uh, during the visit uh, um, uh, uh, about 10 days ago. So let me make a final point or perhaps two final points. The next point obviously is as we move forward, uh, how do we implement uh, what we have uh, uh, concluded? Uh, and as we have opened uh, new chapters, we see many white pages and we need to fill them. I believe that we filled it, uh, and I'll just touch upon that very shortly because I'm sure I'm going to be asked anyway. Uh, we, uh, we have tried to figure out in a specific case where we have disagreed for a long time and we're on a key element we continue to disagree, I'm talking about the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, uh, uh, but there we try to figure out what's the common ground. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. Uh, what are uh, the, uh, uh, the interests we share? Uh, what are our shared uh, worries? Um, 
And as we agree that we don't want Russia to um, drive a wedge uh, uh, among us uh, as transatlantic partners, uh, we don't want uh, Russia to use energy uh, as a weapon. Uh, uh, we want to present uh, a coherent uh, and uh, uh, and strong uh, uh, front to uh, to Russia on that. Uh, and we want to make sure uh, that conditions are in place, both in Ukraine and in Eastern Europe, that will make uh, uh, Ukraine and Eastern Europe uh, less vulnerable, much more resilient, uh, and that will give us tools uh, into our toolboxes, uh, uh, enabling us uh, to respond should Russia proceed and uh, and use energy as a, a weapon. And the toolbox includes not only national measures, but will also include uh, uh, sanctions, including uh, economic sanctions, uh, should a push come uh, to shove. So these are huge uh, new commitments, and they're serious. Uh, they will not eclipse uh, individual concerns on, uh, uh, on the pipeline, which is a transition uh, model, because we all want to leave uh, uh, um, uh, 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 fossil uh, fuels, and we want to move towards uh, green uh, green energy. But for a transition period, uh, we have a dissent, and we manage to work around the dissent uh, and to alter conditions in a way uh, that will uh, provide resilience, uh, uh, where that will um, uh, close the door uh, to a space that Russia has used over the past in order to. Uh, instrumentalize and weaponize uh, fissures uh, among ourselves. And perhaps the last word, we're going to have elections in Germany in, um, in September. Uh, you will know that. I'm often being asked, uh, um, what will that change? What will the change be uh, um, in the transatlantic relationship? Uh, uh, will the next government uh, um, uh, represent continuity in the transatlantic, uh, on our transatlantic move uh, 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 path forward? And my answer uh, to that is yes. And I uh, pick up on something uh, that Liz Brailsford has said. Uh, she's pointed uh, out uh, uh, the, um, the intense uh, architecture of bilateral links between she mentioned uh, Texas and Germany. Uh, Germany. She mentioned uh, uh, the uh, German heritage of uh, many Texans. I could add uh, the uh, um, huge array, uh, array of economic links with over 100 companies uh, in Texas, providing for over 60,000 uh, uh, jobs. I might ask. Uh, I might uh, point to the most, uh, the world's best. Uh, um, uh, a, a, a basketball player that we have uh, exported to the United States, uh, Dirk Nowitzki. I might point to the in, uh, intense, uh, close network of uh, consular offices uh, uh, across Texas. What I'm, my argument here is, uh, whatever the politics of the moment, uh, uh, whatever um, irritants that may exist uh, in moments and sometimes uh, over a couple of years, uh, it does not eclipse uh, the uh, institutional setup of links, of bonds, uh, uh, of uh, formats, of relationships uh, that persist, whatever uh, the differences we may have on individual dossiers, uh, like uh, like. Uh, burden sharing, or as I mentioned, uh, Nord Stream, it exists. Uh, and to some extent, it, it provides uh, immunity um, in the moment, uh, in, the, 
to the politics of the moment uh, where irritants may seem large and much more important uh, uh, than the rest. Uh, um, so I'll leave it at that and I'll return to you, Lee Cullum. Well, thank you so much, Ambassador. I have to say, I can see why you've been so successful. You have a great gift for uh, coming up with language that says everything, decontextualization, we've certainly been suffering from, uh, a geotech world, and the need to define a space for technology. Of course, your nation and ours have had a, a really a big triumph in, in the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. And there are those in the US, this is a little irritant to start with, uh, amidst all the very good things you've just talked about and with which I find myself nodding in agreement. But there are those who would like to see the patent, uh, the patent, the intellectual property rights waived for the vaccine and in order to get it more widely distributed more quickly throughout the world. And Germany has been leading the European Union in opposition to this idea. Why is that? What is your position? Um I don't quite agree, uh, Lee, if I may. Um, we're not against uh, uh, the uh, TRIPS waiver in principle. Uh, and we are in agreement uh, with you uh, as far as the goal uh, is concerned. And the goal is uh, uh, we need as many vaccines to get to people, especially in the developing world, uh, uh, where there is, uh, we see a huge geopolitical divide and uh, inequity in uh, a vaccine distribution right now. That's true. Um, so the questions, uh, the question we ask is, how can we achieve the uh, the objective, uh, get vaccines to people, and how can we enhance uh, production? We are ready, by the way, uh, to go any path forward uh, that will reach that goal. But the question we've asked is, will a trip a trips waiver do the trick? And we're not convinced it does. Uh, I keep asking people uh, to, to provide evidence uh, uh, that that is actually the problem. The problem is uh, not so much production uh, right now. And in 2021, uh, we'll have uh, estimates are between 11 uh, billion to 14 billion uh, um, uh, vaccine doses. Uh, so the that's not the problem. The problem will be uh, how to get vaccines to the people. Uh, in addition to that, experience tells us uh, that even if you waive a patent, uh, um, it doesn't mean uh, that production will pop up immediately. You need uh, expertise, you need uh, personnel, you need the know-how, uh, you need uh, the environment. And I point to the fact that in October last year, Moderna has actually announced uh, that they will um, uh, uh, that uh, uh, they will make accessible uh, they pay, uh, their patent for the vaccine. No one has um, uh, has taken Moderna up uh, uh, to that uh, for the reasons uh, I've mentioned. So um, our answer, uh, therefore, is uh, uh, what we'll have to focus on is um, uh, not only production, but also getting the logistics in place uh, and uh, exporting as many vaccines uh, as we possibly can, or producing vaccines uh, in countries of uh, um, uh, not only beyond the European, beyond the European Union, also in Africa. And that's what we are pushing uh, for right now. But again, and we're open to, uh, we prefer uh, voluntary uh, um, um, 
uh, waivers and mandates. But if that's not possible, uh, we are ready uh, to uh, uh, to go forward on mandatory uh, uh, waivers as well. But so far, um, I have not seen evidence that this was this is the problem. Production is no more the problem. The problem is actually uh, the experts and the logistics. And I also agree uh, with the underlying assumption of your uh, uh, question. Uh, uh, Lee, and that is, um, it's hugely important uh, that we deliver on vaccine exports. It's hugely important because the world is divided in a way that may come with a huge uh, um, political and moral uh, and normative uh, price tag. If democracies and among them uh, the richest countries in the world don't manage uh, to overcome uh, the divide uh, between uh, the vaccine haves and the vaccine haves not, uh, I think democracy and its normative clout uh, uh, will incur uh, long-term uh, consequences. So again, uh, uh, summing up, uh, we're going to do anything uh, uh, that will help us uh, on the way to bringing vaccines uh, to people. And should waivers, uh, um, uh, should um, should waivers uh, actually uh, enhance production and enhance distribution and export? So be it. Uh, we're ready for that. Uh, but so far, uh, no one has made uh, has been able to uh, uh, to explain in what way uh, that would be possible. Uh, um, but and my last point is. Uh, uh, on the waiver discussion too. It has altered the dynamic of the conversation and it has altered uh, the conversation and the um, sense of urgency and responsibility as well. And that's a good thing because it is of overwhelming and defining importance for democracies uh, and uh, their normative clout uh, uh, for the rest of the world. Well, I was very pleased to read just a day or two ago that Pfizer and BioNTech are starting a manufacturing effort, presiding over a manufacturing effort in Cape Town in South Africa. Exactly. So that's, that's good news. Mm -hmm. uh, we have uh, a couple of questions on Nord Stream. This is Texas. You knew that would happen. Uh, one of them wants to know what the crucial factor was that led the U.S. to drop its objection to the pipeline. And that's from uh, Louis Delinsky. Joe Mendenhall wants to point out this. There is a possibility that the Green Party may be a part of a coalition government following the Bundestag election in September. The current major irritant is the issue of Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Will a coalition government with the Green Party participation continue to support Nord Stream 2? Or will it make current American concerns moot? Of course, Nord Stream 2 is finished, isn't it? Um, very nearly so. Um, so uh, to the first question, um, uh, I would object uh, at no stage in our conversations with the American administrations has the American side dropped its concerns and its criticism of Nord Stream. We continue to uh, uh, to uh, hold different, uh, different opinions there. The administration has always stated in no uncertain terms that uh, it thought uh, Nord Stream was a bad idea. Um, uh, the German government, on the other hand, uh, would point out to the fact uh, that this is a pipeline which is legal under German law and legal under European law. So this was the, these were the different vantage points that we came from. Um, but as you have pointed out, uh, Nord Stream is very nearly finished. Uh, it is highly questionable, uh, and this is, I'm just quoting the administration here, uh, whether uh, any sanctions would have been able to stop uh, uh, 
uh, the pipeline. I don't think this would have been the case. So the question um, uh, that was really before us is, uh, will we continue uh, to simply be on different uh, sides of a of an issue that has been toxic in the past uh, and that has played into the hands uh, of the Russian government and others because they saw it as an opening space uh, for exploiting fissures uh, among ourselves uh, and among uh, our Europeans. Or will we try to figure out what uh, the root causes of uh, uh, the concerns are uh, and uh, uh, seek and define a way ahead to address the root causes uh, and to ensure that on the long run, uh, uh, Ukraine's vulnerability uh, uh, due to the dependence on gas transit and gas transit fees will uh, be reduced. Uh, make sure uh, that both Ukraine and Eastern European energy future, the Eastern European energy future will become more resilient and figure out what we can do uh, to do precisely that. And among that figures uh, facilitation of the transit agreement uh, uh, for um, uh, neg negotiations of the transit agreement uh, between Russia and Ukraine uh, for 10 years, which will allow for space in order to develop, uh, to make Ukraine an energy producer in its own right in the green and hydrogen uh, sector, which we are committed to support by a, a, a huge uh, um, uh, green fund uh, for which we foresee 1 billion uh, US dollars. And um, in, uh, in a first step, Germany is going to pay into this fund uh, 175 uh, uh, million US dollars. But we want others, uh, especially of uh, the private uh, uh, um, uh, public sector uh, to involve themselves uh, as well. Uh, we're uh, looking at a huge around, uh, array of uh, um, projects to support from, um, uh, from uh, renewables uh, to decarbonization, uh, to hydrogen uh, supply lines, to uh, just transition uh, facilitation uh, for the integration into uh, the European energy uh, uh, electricity uh, grid. Uh, um, and so forth. So um, I'm mentioning all of that uh, because uh, the essence of it is uh, uh, we have established um, a shared position. Uh, we have isolated uh, the disagreement and we try to work around the disagreement uh, and produce um, uh, uh, to produce um, a way ahead uh, that will um, address the and tackle uh, the root causes uh, of the concerns. Uh, it will not eclipse or alter uh, the criticism against the pipeline, which again, it's a transition uh, phenomenon uh, because we want to get out of uh, fossil fuels, but it will make uh, the difference uh, manageable. So that was behind uh, our thinking uh, uh, when we uh, uh, sought a way ahead. We're not, um, we can't be pitted against each other anymore. And that is precisely what Russia has done uh, over the past years. On the question of the Green Party, uh, the Green Party has always been, um, uh, and it wasn't the only one, uh, critical of Nord Stream uh, 2 for energy reasons, uh, but also for, um, uh, um, uh, because of uh, concerns uh, uh, of the uh, instrumental ability, if I can use that word, I probably invented it, uh, uh, of the pipeline uh, for um, political, uh, for reasons of a political agenda. Uh, 
Um, if you look at the Green Party program, you'll note uh, that they're not saying uh, they want to leave uh, or drop or withdraw, which they couldn't, it's an economic project uh, um, from the pipeline. Uh, they'd be confronted with the same liability issues as this government would, because it's a project legal under German law and legal under European law, and you cannot simply withdraw from it if all legal conditions have been met. What the Green Party says uh, that they suggest that political support uh, is being withdrawn. And that's something fundamentally different than actually withdraw from the project, uh, from an economic project, which is not government uh, led. So my answer to you is, uh, I don't know what the uh, next government will be. I think the assumption is uh, fair that one of the big parties in government right now will be in the next coalition as well. Uh, there is uh, a substantial likelihood that the Greens will play a role there, uh, but their own party program uh, does not oblige them uh, to uh, drop out uh, from the project. Uh, their language is a very cautious, uh, cautiously worded one. Well, cautiously worded is always a good idea. Uh, <laughs> let's turn to migration and, and 2015. You know, we have quite a an issue with migration here in the United States and in Texas. Uh, but I do remember so well, I, I was in Berlin in the summer 2015 and went down and found 15 or 20 of uh, Syrian Kurds and, and got a chance to interview them through a Palestinian who was there helping translate. Uh, but I remember the chancellor saying then we can do this. And in fact, Germans did do this. Uh, you successfully absorbed most of these migrants into your workforce, into your society. You were presiding over it in the interior department. It, it, it happened, did it not? Um, yes, um, but it was in two years, 2015 and 2016, 1.2 million people. Uh, and it came at uh, substantial risks at the time, uh, because when the numbers uh, were surging and when we had 10,000, 12,000 uh, uh, refugees and migrants uh, um, at the German borders every day, uh, the system uh, that was to possess uh, the asylum requests and uh, make sure that everyone uh, was uh, directed to a place in Germany where uh, their cases could be processed, uh, that system didn't, uh, <laughs> didn't work anymore. We had to uh, uh, reconfigure it, we had to alter legislation, uh, and all at the same time, uh, we had to uh, make sure uh, that uh, everyone got housing, everyone uh, uh, was uh, transferred to the places where their cases could be processed, uh, um, that everyone, uh, that security was guaranteed. Uh, these were also the years when we saw the first uh, territory terrorist attacks in a long uh, time. So it was huge. And to left a mark in, in the uh, German conversation, um, the sense of uh, control hadn't been secured at all times, whether rightly or whether that judgment is right or wrong, I'm not saying that, but this was a sense uh, uh, that uh, was part of the conversation at the uh, same time, the sense of uh, loss of uh, security uh, was also part of the conversation and both uh, contributed uh, to the emergence of a right-wing uh, party in Germany, not for the first time, uh, but for the first time on the grounds uh, of migration. Uh, its earlier predecessor uh, had been mostly motivated uh, 
by the discussion uh, that stemmed from the uh, financial crisis uh, nearly a decade before. So um, it was not an easy task. It came uh, with um, a series of unintended uh, um, uh, consequences uh, uh, that the society has to uh, deal with. Uh, and the observation also is in place that you cannot uh, only judge uh, in, uh, the degree of integration uh, by looking at the integration into the labor market or by the acquisition of language skills. While both are uh, important yardsticks, uh, the most important one is, I guess, uh, whether people are ready uh, to, uh, to be part of a society that is open, that is tolerant, uh, uh, that uh, uh, requires acceptance of people who are different, uh, uh, that accept uh, the legacy of German history uh, for that matter, because it's a defining factor of who we want to be in future. So integration is a long, is a generational uh, uh, challenge, and it doesn't only affect those who come, it also affects, obviously, uh, the, so the welcoming societies, and both uh, need to interact, uh, and which it, it would change both the welcoming society uh, and uh, uh, the migrants as well. So it comes with difficulties that we should not ignore. Well, you're right. I would like to say on behalf of Texas, we have worked hard for many years to be a welcoming society here in this state. And I, I think we have been uh, given all the problems notwithstanding. Uh, here's a question from John Kornblum. Can you describe the concept of digital sovereignty for us and tell us why so many Germans seem to believe they have a better partner in China than in the U.S.? We'll take that. Well, John is a very good friend of mine. I figured that. <laughs> and I know uh, that he will not be surprised uh, if I contradict him. First of all, China is not a, a better partner. I don't think uh, anyone uh, with uh, his, uh, his uh, right, in his right mind or her right mind uh, uh, would say that. I also uh, um, refute the argument uh, that a country like Germany would be hedging. Uh, China is an authoritarian state uh, which uses technology in order to uh, in order to. Uh, um, uh, constrain and survey and oppress its own society. And what we're trying to do, for us, technology will be a way ahead in order to protect the democratic rights and individual rights of our society. Now, as I said before, John, I believe basically we are completely in agreement on uh, how we want, um, what we want to preserve uh, as technology and uh, our um, digital societies move uh, forward. We want to protect uh, individual rights. We want to protect uh, privacy, data protection, but we also want to become innovative because whether um, Europeans uh, um, will continue to play a role in 20 or 30 years will probably depend on uh, their capacity for innovation in the tech, uh, technological arena as well. So I think it's fair to say uh, that we, will, we don't only want to be dependent, uh, not even on our closest partner, uh, the United States. We need capacity for innovation ourselves too. But we need, uh, um, uh, why we want to do that, uh, um, 
we want to secure the realm of technology or not secure that's it we want to define the space for technology and we want to define the limits uh, that will be necessary in order to protect democracies and we want to define uh, uh, the space so while doing both of it uh, um, i don't think americans are right in saying uh, if you want to move forward and that's what digital sovereignty stand forward we want to we want to be a digital player. We want to be more innovative. We want to be more protective of our rights. But that should be seen here as something that is an added value and an asset to the United States as well. Because after all, in, our, in the geopolitical world of today, uh, our, collect our respective strengths are an add-on uh, to the strength of our uh, uh, partners. Uh, and if we join forces, uh, we can, uh, we will be the, uh, the ones who define the confines and the limits uh, and the uh, standards. Uh, and we want to do it in a way uh, that would, will, uh, will put pressure uh, on authoritarian states because they're the elephant in the room uh, with something uh, completely different. So digital sovereignty is something uh, that should be uh, seen as a long-term investment uh, of uh, in a strength uh, of Europeans uh, that will benefit uh, democracies and our collective uh, capacity, not only to stand our ground, but also to find the limits of others. I think we're about to see an add-on in space travel. I just read this morning in the FT that Porsche is about to buy a rocket science company. So uh, here we go. Uh, here are a couple of questions pertaining to defense. One from Anthony McClure. Having spent most of my adult life involved with NATO and Germany and three postings there, including the US Embassy, where do you see the military alliance between our two countries and also within NATO going? And let's add this from Bruce Frank. Two substantial irritants that have existed for years between the US and Germany are number one, spending 4% of GDP on national defense instead of the current 1.5. No, I think it's 2% that the agreement was, but but anyway, uh, maybe I'm wrong. Uh, and two, uh, extremely large imbalanced trade in favor of Germany never get addressed. Uh, there, I think it's manufactured goods uh, where perhaps uh, you export more to us than we do to you, but services are pretty pretty much even, I think. But anyway, you know better than I. Well, I, I don't think both questions are inter uh, interrelated, and I don't. I'm, I'm not quite sure whether the question. Uh, indicated uh, that the person who asked it uh, uh, thought it was. Uh, on, uh, uh, on the NATO alliance, um, uh, I'll uh, turn back to what I said before in the Washington, uh, about the Washington Declaration uh, that has been issued by the president and the chancellor, and that is, uh, um, we have reconfirmed that we share uh, um, our commitment to NATO and the relevance of NATO uh, within the transatlantic relationship and in the EU-American and German-American relationship as well. It's a cornerstone of our, of our security. Um, we've had over many, many years disagreements on burden sharing. I remember in the 1980s when I first entered the German Foreign Office, which was in 1982, we actually discussed 3%. <laughs> Um, because that had been the goal at the time. So it, that is not new. 
Um, I agree uh, with um, uh, uh, the um, uh, the person asking. That is, uh, if you make commitments, you fulfill them. And in Wales, in 2014, we committed uh, ourselves to reach two uh, percent. Uh, by 2024. We're now at uh, slightly over 1.5%, which is not enough, but we're moving forward. And the uh, Chancellor has said with the authority of her office uh, that Germany is set to reach uh, uh, that goal. I also noted, if I may say that, uh, that uh, in a period uh, when burden sharing uh, had been raised as a very contentious issue, and sometimes in uh, um, um, how shall I uh, phrase that diplomatically, uh, in a more than forthright uh, uh, manner, uh, it hasn't produced uh, more uh, amenability in Germany uh, because the psychology of that politics uh, produced uh, uh, reactions in Germany uh, that were less uh, uh, than forthcoming in looking at what the promises had uh, been. So I think we're in a different space uh, right now. Uh, and uh, um, and we'll be we'll be moving forward. We need that, uh, not because of uh, uh, America saying it, and not because of uh, the largest partner in the uh, in NATO is saying it, but because uh, of the geopolitical environment uh, that requires us uh, to do it and to acknowledge uh, uh, the risks. Uh, should we not and uh, acknowledge the threats? Uh, uh, which actually, which are the reasons uh, why we need to move forward on uh, uh, on that, on uh, the trade uh, balance. Yes, uh, there has been a disbalance uh, of trade, but I would and I would ask uh, uh, the question: uh, In what way uh, uh, does it help uh, the uh, transatlantic relationship, EU-American relationship, uh, uh, and our capacity to be seen as? Uh, as a unified uh, um, uh, alliance um, or um, uh, a group of like-minded democracies uh, um, uh, pitted against authoritarian states, uh, if we target each other uh, by dint of tariffs uh, uh, or uh, sanctions, what does it say about our willingness and determination uh, to act hand in glove and to respond uh, to uh, developments we don't like? Uh, how does it help in, uh, in a time uh, where um, overproduction of steel and aluminium uh, isn't a European problem, but a problem emanating from China if uh, we are being targeted uh, by dint of uh, tariffs. Um, all of that uh, leads me to the uh, final um, uh, and the final conclusion, and that is, uh, let's be aware of the fact uh, that in um, a world of changing geopolitics with uh, um, huge individual uh, partners, first and foremost China, uh, or actors, and first and uh, foremost China, which probably is the single most uh, powerful country in the world, uh, um, able to undermine uh, uh, the international rule-based system uh, for which the, uh, the United States and the Western world uh, have done so much. Uh, how does it help? Uh, and what language does it speak if we target one another? What uh, does this language uh, say uh, uh, about um, um, opportunities or potential uh, 
to um, uh, uh, play us off. Uh, how, what does it say about uh, the prospects uh, and opportunities uh, uh, to use uh, fissures among ourselves? Everything we do speaks a language and it is being read by actors uh, which do not look at the individual irritants uh, about, uh, uh, about which we uh, 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 dispute uh, or fight. Uh, they look uh, at the overall effects uh, that are exploitable. And I think we're best advised uh, not to give these openings. This is from Raymond Termini. What should a new agreement with Iran include that was not in the JCPOA? And will Germany and the EU support it if it is not approved by the US Senate? Look, that's a very difficult question because um, uh, we are still in the midst of, uh, uh, I cannot say negotiations because as you know, uh, uh, there is a hiatus uh, right now and we don't know how that is going to evolve. Uh, but I've, uh, I have this golden rule, uh, rule that in a situation uh, where everything uh, can move or is movable uh, and where the uh, fog hasn't lifted uh, for me to allow the contours of what uh, may evolve, uh, I'll not make any predictions uh, and not, not settle uh, on a scenario. Uh, what I'll say is this, uh, we share the objective uh, in, uh, and that is, uh, let's make sure uh, that Iran will never have a nuclear military program. Uh, let's make sure uh, 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 that we um, uh, uh, do everything to uh, make Iran return to uh, uh, compliance. Uh, and let's figure out uh, how we tackle uh, in the longer term issues that are not acceptable to either of us uh, relating to the uh, uh, Iranian um, uh, regional behavior or the, uh, the missile uh, programs. These are the parameters uh, of the challenges that confront us and we'll have to tackle them. But how and, and what sequencing and uh, what the conditions will be uh, um, in a situation that I cannot predict today, uh, and I, I'm not able to say. This is from Carl Zhang. Could you comment on the recent frontline documentary on the infiltration of the ultra-right into the German military? Um, um, I wouldn't call it an, a recent infiltration, but uh, um, uh, surveys and uh, inquiries uh, have, uh, have shown uh, that was uh, in, uh, as a consequence uh, by the, back, uh, by, the, uh, by the way, uh, of uh, an attempt of a right-wing uh, soldier trying to, um, uh, trying to uh, use the German asylum system and present himself uh, as a Syrian uh, refugee that triggered uh, a series of inquiries uh, uh, that made the uh, Defense uh, Department, the Defense Ministry in Germany uh, look into uh, uh, specific cases uh, and cases uh, of uh, uh, right-wing uh, ideologies uh, in the armed uh, service. Uh, there have been individual cases, uh, but there's no such thing as uh, a massive uh, infiltration. There have been individual cases uh, and the defense ministry uh, has taken them uh, uh, straight on. And we have... Uh... We've had a question for quite a while that I have waited to get to. Uh, Tarek Lucien Rajev wants to know more about Chancellor Merkel, maybe even an interesting story about her and you. <laughs> uh, that can be told. 
Oh, exactly. I'm, uh, I don't think she'd appreciate, I, I have heard as a rule uh, that she does not appreciate uh, personal stories to be told uh, uh, about her or people she may have met uh, in, uh, in her life. <laughs> so uh, there again, uh, the best stories are the untold stories uh, and the best way ahead uh, is not uh, to, uh, to tell personal or share personal stories. Well, of course, all German, a lot of German journalists are writing about her now, the last weeks of her tenure as chancellor. And uh, one of them was asking the question, will she be considered one of the, shall we say, Mount Rushmore chancellors with Adenauer, who uh, led West Germany into the Atlantic world, Willy uh, Brandt, who turned east, asked forgiveness from Eastern Europe and fell on his knees in Warsaw at the ghetto, very moving, and sought detente with Russia, as Nixon was doing at the same time. And of course, Helmut Kohl, who presided over a unification and gave up the Deutschmark to join the Euro and really anchor the reunited Germany in Europe. Uh, do you see Chancellor Merkel in that group? Um, first of all, it's very uh, early days. I listened carefully to the chancellors you've mentioned. Uh, you haven't named uh, Willy Brandt, who actually was the oh, I'm sorry, I, I intended to. He, uh, yeah. yes, he even got the Peace Nobel Prize. And then you've only omitted two chancellors, <laughs> um, uh, which um, shows you, uh, I think it's fair to say this. Every, every chancellor, especially a chancellor of so many years, uh, has been confronted with very specific challenges. Helmut Kohl uh, has been chancellor uh, uh, when he managed uh, German unity and he did so with great co uh, courage. Um, Konrad Adenauer was the chancellor in the early uh, days of the Federal Republic of uh, Germany uh, uh, when Germany was still a pariah uh, marked uh, by the horrors uh, uh, of the Holocaust uh, and of the uh, Nazi regime, and he slowly uh, started the return uh, of Germany uh, into uh, the uh, uh, um, into the group of civilized uh, nations. Uh, Willy Brandt uh, opened Germany uh, to uh, uh, Eastern, or re, uh, restarted also with great courage and domestic political courage. Uh, um, its uh, relationship with uh, Eastern European countries and those who had uh, tremendously suffered uh, 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 from German occupation and the uh, Second World War. So what uh, Chancellor Merkel will be remembered for uh, are the two huge uh, crises uh, that have marked uh, uh, her chancellorship, uh, uh, for one, uh, the management uh, of the financial crisis, uh, which uh, was um, uh, interrelated uh, with a massive uh, change, a nearly existential uh, uh, change uh, in, um, uh, in uh, uh, the way uh, Europeans interacted uh, on the specific case. It came with great risks. Uh, and she managed uh, uh, that trajectory. She also managed uh, uh, the migration crisis, uh, which had seen higher numbers of migration in Europe uh, than ever uh, uh, before in living, uh, in living memory, at least uh, uh, since the uh, Second World War. Uh, and she did it in a way uh, that did not um, um, uh, of course, uh, uh, the Euro European countries were very much divided uh, uh, um, uh, on that, but uh, the way she managed uh, uh, that did not add to divisions, but tried uh, to bridge uh, 
um, uh, divisions of uh, thinking, which basically uh, basically came from a different historical experiences. And last not least, uh, she uh, managed the third uh, huge disruptive uh, uh, challenge of, of her time and of our time, uh, and that is uh, uh, a pandemic that knew no borders and where in Europe, uh, at least in living memory, uh, no comparable experience provided a, a playbook how to move forward and how to act. So uh, that will be the, uh, uh, these challenges will be de uh, the defining moments of her chancellorship, and I think they will remain. Well, uh, it it's hard to disagree with a word you say. Uh, I think all of us agree with you. Ambassador, thank you very much for all you've given us this hour. And Liz, back to you. Well, thank you both so much for this excellent discussion. Uh, we had excellent uh, participation from the community in this event, uh, I'm sure for, from many different time zones. So thank you both. And uh, to catch up on our past programs, head over to our YouTube channel at DFW World. And if you're not a member of our council yet, please join us. We want to see you in person so soon. And you can head to our website at dfwworld.org for more informa information on membership and programming. Ladies, thank you again for that insightful and critical conversation on the future of our transatlantic uh, relationship. Have a great day, everyone.